Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Today we continue our sermon series in the book of Philippians. And over the last five weeks we've seen Paul calling the Philippian church to work out their salvation. He's instructed them on how they are to do that with fear and trembling and also how they are to not without with no grumbling and no complaining. And then over the last three weeks we've seen we've seen Paul lift up three flesh and blood examples that have lived out that call himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 3 this morning in our text. I invite you to turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, which reads, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come to you now and just thank you for a time that we have to open up your word together this morning. Just pray that you would reveal its truth to us while we're here and that we would walk away from here being a people that are more grateful for your word that we have in our possession, um, that we can learn from it, and also for all that you've done for us, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul continues his discourse to the Philippian church in verse 1 of chapter 3. And the first word that we come across is finally. And to our Western minds, when we see this, we would conclude that maybe Paul is wrapping up this letter and he's moving on to something else. And many have concluded that same thing when they see these, this word finally. That, as we talked about last week, some believe that the letter to the Philippians was two separate letters that someone later merged together. One of the reasons they thought that we talked about last week was some of the time um, and travel restrictions 
that would have taken to get from Rome to Philippi and back. A second reason that we see is the wording here, finally. Some conclude that this is the end of the first letter, and then somewhere in the middle of verse 1, it picks up to the second. And the third reason we'll see why some conclude that this is also possibly two letters is in this text we see a change of tone from the Apostle Paul. And as we'll see this morning, once again, there's no reason to jump to such conclusions. This is one cohesive letter calling the Philippians to rejoice no matter what and to be unified in the Lord. And as the Expositor's Expositor's Bible Commentary states, Paul's wording here is not meant to be the closing formula of his epistle, but rather a logical conclusion or a fresh point in the progress of thought. And we see that he, as he moves on, he tells them that his words that they've, he's already written to them once before, um, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord always once again, and that his words are a safeguard for them. And we're going to see how that unfolds this morning in two separate ways. The first safeguard that he's offering up is he's telling them to <clears throat> beware of the Jewish people who have put their confidence in the flesh. And we see this in verse 2. Paul offers up three bewares. Philippians 3.2 Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And what we're seeing here from Paul is three bitter play on words that are meant to turn the tables on the Jews for their boasting in the flesh and reveal what their self-confidence looks like in the eyes of the Lord. The Jews who regularly refer to the Gentiles as filthy dogs, unworthy to eat from the banqueting table because of their sin and unrighteousness, are now referred to by Paul as the filthy dogs because they cling to their own self-righteousness. The Jews who in their affirmation of the Mosaic Covenant confirmed that they would obey all that the Lord has commanded and thus be a people of people of the Lord in the Lord's own possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation are now referred to by Paul as the evil workers. The Jews who are to be set apart to the Lord not only by a circumcision of the flesh, but also a circumcision of their hearts, have gone beyond a mere cutting around, peritome, but instead have performed a cutting off, catatome. And as we move on to verse 3, we see that Paul differentiates himself and the Philippian church from this group. He says, beware of these people. You don't want to be like them. And then he says in verse 3, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He makes sure the Philippians understand that they're not in the same grouping as those people. And we're going to see the reasons why as we move on in this text. And then as Paul moves beyond this first safeguard, a broad one looking to the Jewish people, he then narrows in on a much more personal one. He offers up his own life as an example to the Philippians to look to and says, look, at, look to the Jews as a safeguard and look to myself as a safeguard. We see this, once again, in our text in verses 4 through 6. 
Paul says, Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And what we're seeing here is that Paul make, wants to make sure the Philippians clearly understand that if anyone is to have confidence in the flesh, that it's going to be Paul. And he gets this point across by offering up seven advantages or gains that he has over his fellow man. <clears throat> and as we walk through this, it'll help us to think through it with the example of a religious resume, because that's what Paul is offering up here. And as we think through it that way, imagine that Paul is looking to land a job, so he gives his resume to an employer, and as the employer's flipping through all the stuff, 99 applicants have bachelor degrees from a community college, and then they get to Paul's, and he's got doctorates from Princeton, Yale, Harvard, and Oxford. Clearly, one stands out among the others. And that's what Paul is saying here. If anyone has means to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he provides four advantages that he acquired outside of his control and three that he gained for himself. We see the first one in verse five. He says, he starts out with his list of the things that he acquired by saying, circumcised the eighth day. And he doesn't start here because of a chronological order, because he wasn't circumcised until eight days after he was born of the nation of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. This starts out at the top of his list, because if you were a Jewish male, this would be at the top of your list. It was instituted by God himself at the outset of the Abrahamic covenant. And we see this in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 12. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. As we can see in these verses, this religious rite was to be a sign of the covenant, an outward sign of an inward reality. But as with so many things, after two millennia passes by, the Jews had lost sight of the inward reality that was supposed to be reflected by the outward. And by the time Paul has, is writing this letter, this would have been passed down from generation to generation for nearly 2,000 years. And we can also see from the New Testament that it was still a big deal to the Jews because it was the main reason behind the first church council. Some Jewish Christians didn't think it was enough 
to be saved by faith in Christ alone and wanted to add other things to this list. Paul, knowing how big of a deal this would have been, starts out his list of acquired advantages by saying, circumcised the eighth day. And then he moves on to the second. Not only was he circumcised the eighth day, but he was born of the nation of Israel. Or as other versions would say, of the stock of Israel. And to the Philippians, this would have been a massive advantage that Paul had over them because as we're reminded in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, being a Jew came with a lot of advantages. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. And as Paul continues along with his list of advantages, he moves from the fact that he was born of the nation of Israel and then once again, steps it up another notch. Not only, not only was he an Israelite, but he goes on to say he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. And if we can think back to some Old Testament history, we'll know that being a part of this tribe came with even more advantages. Benjamin was Jacob's only son born in the Promised Land. The first king, King Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin was only one of two tribes that remained loyal to King David's line after the kingdoms divided. And also they were one of two tribes that rebuilt the temple after the exile. Once again, as he's compiling this religious resume, he's listing reason after reason why he has, why he has more reasons to put confidence in the flesh. And then he closes out the list of acquired advantages by saying, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And to this, scholars aren't in total agreement as to exactly what this means, but most conclude that it refers to Paul knowing the Hebrew language. After the exile, the Jews were scattered all about the region, um, and many of them not living in Israel anymore, being separated from their homeland, would have eventually forgotten their native tongue. They would have no longer been able to speak Hebrew. We see in in the book of Acts that while Paul is speaking to a group of people that he then talks in the Hebrew tongue and it catches their attention. And this helps clue us into the fact that not all of the Jews of that day would have known Hebrew. And this is how he rounds out his last advantage that he acquired. He was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet, he doesn't end his list here. Because some would be able to argue, yeah, Paul, that list is great, but you didn't do anything to earn those for yourself. And to cover those, he moves on to three more. And once again, he starts off the list with a bang. 
He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. And when we hear this word today, we know that the Pharisees were a religious sect of Jesus' day. But oftentimes we're looking down on them now. And we're doing that because over and over again we see Jesus calling them out for their self-righteousness in the Gospels. And they're putting confidence in the flesh. But this would have not would not have been the case in Paul's day. They would not have looked down on the Pharisees, but have looked up to them. And Jewish historian Josephus says this about the Pharisees. They are those who are esteemed most skillful in the exact explication of the law. And commentator Dennis Johnson says, Paul, in order to sum up his commitment both to study and to obey the commands delivered through Moses, needed to say no more than as to the law, a Pharisee. And yet on top of this, we know from the book of Acts that he wasn't just your run-of-the-mill Pharisee. He was trained under Gamaliel, and he was also a son of Pharisees. Paul doesn't end his list of gains that he earned there either. He keeps moving on. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And what we can get from this is that Paul wasn't just an academic who kept his nose planted in a book and never left the confines of his study. No, he wasn't afraid to get his feet muddied or his hands bloodied for his religion. And he speaks of his zeal in his own defense to King Agrippa in Acts 26. Acts 26, 9 through 11. So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And then his final, li- his final thing that he had earned for himself <clears throat> is as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And he says this just as the Philippians would have been saying to themselves, All right, all right, Paul, we get your point here. Then he adds this final one to the list, putting the last nail in the coffin. As to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And, excuse me, to our ears when we hear this, as to the righteousness found in the law, blameless, we assume that Paul is going to an extreme end just to prove a point. Because We know that he wrote the book of Romans, where he looks back on Old Testament and says, no one's righteous, not even one. So we can be confident that Paul's not negating himself here and saying that no one's righteous, not even one, except me. That's not what Paul is saying here. As one commentator wrote, just as King David declares that he is blameless in the Psalms, 
and praises God for dealing with him according to his righteousness and the cleanness of my hands. Or just as Luke writes of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, so too can Paul <clears throat> claim that he was found blameless because to the extent that the law could offer blamelessness to those who observed its rules and rights, Paul had achieved the apex of such righteousness that lay within the reach of human effort. No one could surpass his record. <clears throat> and as we look down this list, we're able to see that if anyone has reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's Paul. He does far more. If anyone has a chance of attaining righteousness, which is found in the law, it's Paul. And as we once again return to our analogy of the religious resume, we can imagine Paul walking up to the receptionist's desk with his resume stacked a foot high. And as the other 99 applicants see him walking up and just get a glimpse at what he has compared to them, they all get up from their seat on the floor and conclude that it's time to go home. Because they say to one another, yeah, Paul's got this thing in the bag. We don't even have a chance. And this is how we would expect the narrative to go. But this is not how it goes. We read on in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. <clears throat> Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And after Paul's worked his way down a checklist, religious rights, check. Right nationality, check. Good upbringing, outward obedience to God's laws, check. Zealous for my religion, check. Righteousness which is in the law, found blameless, check. He works his way down all of these things, all of these gains, all of these advantages. But what does he say in verse 7? All of these things that he once counted as gain, he now sees as zemia, loss. He sees all of these things as one big loss. <clears throat> and as one commentator put it, Paul deliberately employs banking terminology here to dramatize how radically the risen Lord has reversed his whole scale of values. Every deposit that Saul thought he had been making into his account in the presence of God was actually, he now knew, just one more debit. And imagine that, friends. Week after week, month after month, year after year, Paul goes to the bank, makes his normal transaction, and assumes that all is well. And then years later, he finally lays his eyes on the ledger, and what he's assuming should be a million-dollar credit or gain, he's able to see that he's not just at zero. It actually drove him into the negative. He sees that all of the things that he once counted as gain are loss. But what would it have been that opened his eyes to this reality? 
Was he just sitting there reflecting one day and all of a sudden he realized all the things that he was working for, the things that would have been at the top of his list, are all of a sudden not gains but loss? No, look at what the text says. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul compares compares all of his gains to Christ, to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And he realizes that all the things he once counted as gain are loss. And friends, how many of us, like Paul, have wasted years of our lives putting confidence in ourselves and building up all of these things that we would consider gains. And maybe you're still doing here as you sit here this morning, adding another checklist to your tally or another credit to your account. But know this, in God's accounting, all of these things on their own will gain you nothing. They're not gains, they're loss. But you'll never realize this until you compare them to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord. For what is $10,000 when compared to the life of your child? What's 80 years here on this earth when compared to eternity? What's the assessment of everything you own when compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord? And as Paul looks back on his life, once again, he doesn't just realize this while he's sitting on his couch, reflecting on his life. No, he's on his way to Damascus, and as we know from the book of Acts, God intervenes in his life. He sees a bright light, and he's exposed to the Savior of the world. And now as he looks back on his life and writes to the Philippian church, he says that all of these advantages that I had, all of these gains, this giant religious resume that I had been working for, it's all loss because of the comparison. Now that God has opened his eyes to the truth and Paul can see things through God's economic system, he recognizes that these gains are loss, but he still needs to do something with the knowledge that he's been given from the Lord. And we see what he does with this once again in verses 7 through 8 of our text. says, whatever things were gained to me, <clears throat> those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. We see from our text that Paul first must acknowledge that all of these things are not gains, but they're lost. And then beyond that, beyond just acknowledging those things, he must be willing to actually lose them. And this is what we see in the text. We see him saying, I counted as loss, verse 7, and I count as loss, verse 8. And then also in verse 8, we see that he actually had to let go of these things. He says, 
for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. And once again, as we think through this, what is it that would cause Paul to do this? This would have been the greatest thing that this man has ever attained. All of these gains that he's acquired a lot from his parents, many that he had worked long and hard for. So why would he just throw them out of his life? It's not because he needed to move more junk into his life and take some junk out. No, he does it for a purpose. At the end of verse 8, we see, we'll just look at all of verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. He's not doing this for no purpose at all. He looks at his gains, he looks at his advantages, he looks at all of these other things, all of the reasons he has to put confidence in the flesh, and he gives them up so that something might happen. And we're able to see from the remainder of the text why he does this. He says, I'm going to give up all of these things so that I may gain Christ, I may be found in Christ, and I may know Christ. He had to throw away all of his gains all of his reasons for having confidence in the flesh so that for the first time in his life, he would experience not loss, but true gain. Because as we know, we're unable, we can't get to the Lord, we don't get to the Lord by relying on ourselves. We get to the Lord by letting go of ourselves. And we see this in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Luke 9, 23 through 24. And Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. We see in this verse here that Paul recognizes that he needs to let go of himself in order to gain Christ. And we're also able to see this same thing in this morning's text. If we look back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, we see beforehand Paul saying, Beware of the Jews, beware of the dogs, the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And then verse 3, For we are the true circumcision— who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And once again, as he's looking back to the Jewish people, he's saying, beware of them because they've placed all of their confidence in the flesh. And then he offers himself up as a different group who rather than putting confidence in the flesh, put no confidence in the flesh. And we see the difference in this group. They worship in the spirit of God and they glory or they put all of their boast in Christ Jesus and no confidence in the flesh. And we're able to see that Paul's commending the Philippian church because they have performed the act that God always had in mind. 
Not just a cutting of the flesh, but a cutting of the heart. And this is what Paul is driving to in this text. He's saying, if anyone has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And, and when I look back and realize all of these things that I once counted as gain are not a gain. They're actually a loss. But I had to give up all of these things so that I might gain something. And we see from our text what happens when Paul was finally willing to stop putting all of his confidence in the flesh. He experiences gain. Before, when he looked back on the ledger of his life, it was so deep in the red that he had no chance of ever balancing it out. But then he adds in one more transaction. He adds in Christ, and his balance soars through the roof. But in order to get there, he had to put away all of his reasons for having confidence in the flesh. And when he does so, he gains Christ. As we move on, we see that he not only gains Christ, but in verse 9, when he does this, he may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now that Paul has finally put down all of his reasons for putting confidence in the flesh, he experiences gain and He's also able to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own. And he's able to find in Christ what he was never able to find for himself. Righteousness. True righteousness. Not his own derived from the law, but righteousness which is in Jesus Christ, which can only be given from God and received by faith. And we see here that Paul is confident that when he stands before God at judgment, that he will not be found wanting, declaring to God that he's righteous because of his own actions and own deeds. But when he's found in Christ, he'll be clothed in Christ's righteousness, not his own. But not because of anything that he's done, just because he was willing to let go of all of his confidence in the flesh and put all of his confidence in in Christ Jesus. We see that when the Apostle Paul was willing to let go of all his reasons for putting confidence in the flesh, he gains Christ, he may be found in Christ, and then we also see in verse 10 that when he does this, he may know Christ. Verses 10 through 11, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And what Paul is after here is not just a casual knowledge of knowing who Christ Jesus is. No, what he's saying when he can know Christ, he's not willing to just be familiarized with who Christ is, but what he's saying is that I'm going to know him so much that I'm going to actually follow after Christ. I'm going to give my life to him and follow the same exact pattern that he laid out for us. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. What Paul is saying here is that 
The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that he wants to know in his own life. For we know that when Jesus came down to earth, he had no sin in him, so he was already spiritually alive. But for all of us, that's not the case. Uh, Before we begin our race, God has to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And he only can do that by God's power, which also raised him from the dead. And once he does that, then our journey begins following after Jesus. And Paul says, I give up all of my confidence so that I can gain, so that I can be found, so that I can know Christ, and I can know the power of his resurrection. Yet, he doesn't look to stop there. I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. See, Paul realizes that now that he's spiritually alive, his first step in following Christ is to know the fellowship of his sufferings. We can see this elsewhere in Scripture in John chapter 15. John 15, 18 through 20. Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember that the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Paul's not content with just having a casual relationship with the Lord. He's not just looking to know Christ as we would know some name that's far off that we've never met and set eyes before. He wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowships of his sufferings, so that he may be conformed to his death. And we get a better understanding of this as well in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Paul once again says here, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This is what Paul's after when he's looking to know Christ. Power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And we finally see at the end of our text, In verse 11, he says, In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And Paul, being a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, this is the thing that he would always had his eyes set upon. He would have been looking to all these advantages that he had been given by his parents and then others that he had earned in hopes that he would be able to attain righteousness, which is found in the law, so that eventually he would be resurrected and make his way to heaven. Acts 23.6 spells this out for us very clearly. It's again from the mouth of Paul. 
But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. We're able to see this morning that all of these things didn't become possible for Paul until he let go of of all of the reasons he had to put confidence in in himself. It wasn't until that he let go of those things that for the first time, rather than experiencing nothing but loss, he could experience gain. It wasn't until he was willing to let go of all of those things that he was no longer searching to have a righteousness which he earned for himself, but rather he could be found in Christ, having a righteousness which comes from God. We can also see that it wasn't until he was willing to let go of himself and all the reasons for putting confidence in the flesh, that until he was willing to do that, he was never able to know Christ. He would be unable to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. He would have never been conformed to his death, and he would never be able to attain the resurrection from the dead. And after God reveals to Paul the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord, Paul had to count all of these gains as loss and rubbish. And then he had to acknowledge and actually suffer the loss of all of these things. And church, hopefully as we've seen this morning, none of us will ever, ever be able to amass a list as grand as that of the Apostle Paul's. But even if we could, we've seen this morning that we would fall miserably short. So stop trying to get to God on your own effort because you never, <clears throat> you never will. Stop putting confidence in your own flesh and what you'll experience for yourself is the same thing that Paul experienced. Not loss, but gain. Put all your confidence in the flesh so that you too may gain Christ, may be found in Christ, and may know Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and just thank you once again for our time to gather here, to spend time in your word, and just uh, search it out and see what it has to say to us, Lord. I just pray that each of us here this morning would look at our own lives and you would just expose to us if we're caught up in looking to ourselves for our own righteousness and you just help strip away all of those things out of our lives, Lord, so that we'd be able to recognize before it's too late that all of these things that we would count in our lives as gains, Lord, when we expose them to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord, they're all loss. Please help us to acknowledge that and realize that, but then also be willing to actually let go of these things. For as we've seen this morning, it wasn't until Paul was willing to actually let go that he was able to gain you, to be found in you, and to know you. Pray that we each do the same things this morning, for, for your glory, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.